Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark. I'm joined by two of our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal and Damon Linker of the Week. Linda Chavez is off this week. Sitting in for her is my Bulwark colleague, Amanda Carpenter. And our special guest this week is Jonathan Chait, columnist for New York Magazine. Welcome, one and all. Well, just minutes before we sat down to record, uh, President Biden uh, appeared at a at the East Room of the White House to announce, well, what exactly? He announced the framework of a, an agreement, but then immediately there was some doubt as to whether all the Democrats have really signed on. So, um, Jonathan Chait, I'm going to start with you. You were quick out of the gate to say that this could be great. Um, but what do you make of the fact that it isn't really an agreement? Yeah, it seems like the main holdouts right now are Cinema and Mansion, who haven't yet endorsed the, the framework. Uh, and the Progressive Caucus says, we like this framework, we'll support it. Wait, um, wait, wait, wait. Uh, are you sure? I, I saw that Bernie Sanders was saying it's the beginning of a negotiation, and Rashida Tlaib was saying she can't go along with it. I don't know. I'm, I'm not necessarily sure you're right about that. They have released statements saying they support the framework and want it to pass. Really? Okay. Yeah. Well, I hope uh, – okay. All right. Continue. Um, I'll quote Ilan Omar, who's probably the most left-wing member of Congress. As a caucus, the Progressive Caucus is happy with this framework and eager to push it through. Okay. Uh, I don't think Bernie Sanders said that, but that, but but please continue. Yeah, I don't think there's going to be any problem getting votes on the left for this. I think their hang-up right now is that Manchin and Cinema haven't yet endorsed it. Mm -hmm. But, um, well, this is all moving fast and maybe obsolete by the time we've hit people's earpods, but... Manchin says he wants wants to see text of the deal, uh, so it's possible that after he sees the text, he'll say yes. You know, the framework is agreeable to him, and it's also possible Cinema will say the same thing, and then I think you'll you'll have something. But um, as as I wrote, I think they've really got to fix a lot of the spending provisions in this bill. I think the climate part is great; it's historic, um, and it will give Biden leverage to negotiate a global deal. But uh, you've got too many social programs that expire after five or six years, and there's this wan hope that somehow um, Republicans will be pressured to continue them, but I think that's completely unrealistic. Uh, Bill Galston, what do you think? Uh, is, this, um, is this a great deal on the verge of, of being passed? And what do you make of the argument made by our own Damon Linker, among others, that if the Democrats want a huge New Deal agenda, a New Deal-ish agenda, that they need to win more races? Well, uh, I, I certainly agree with Damon about that. Uh, but the, what we're testing now is how much of a house you can build on a very slender foundation, slender political foundation. Uh, and uh, the agreement announced, I believe, is testing and defining that limit. The question of how the American people will respond is a different question altogether. Uh, one even later breaking fact uh, that I should put on the table is that after the president announced the framework, 
Speaker Pelosi announced that she was taking the long stalled bipartisan infrastructure bill to the floor today uh, with whatever agreement appears to be in hand, however incomplete it may be. And she further said, and I can virtually quote this, we will hold the vote open until we get a majority. So she is apparently uh, doing what some people in the more center-leaning parts of the Democratic Party urged her to do some weeks ago, namely roll the dice and see whether the Progressive Caucus is bluffing or not, and also uh, and also find out uh, find out where the Senate holdouts are. So we shall see, but this could be a very interesting day. Yeah. Amanda, it is sort of a nail biter. Tell me how it seemed to you. It struck me watching Biden's statement that he was, you know, he's he makes this statement in the East Room as he's about to head to Andrews to go to Europe. And he says, we have the framework. This is a done deal. This is a fait accompli. And he almost was setting it up so that if the progressives don't vote this afternoon for the original you know, hard infrastructure deal that Nancy Pelosi is bringing up, that they will be embarrassing him and potentially crippling his presidency. And so he's upping the ante. And then Barack Obama comes out with a statement also sort of implying this is this is done. I mean, this is really nail biting stuff, is it not? I wouldn't call it nail biting necessarily. <laughs> um, I could think of more things that are far more exciting than watching this. But listen, this is not a sign of confidence. The president standing up and saying, please do this or you'll embarrass me and we all might lose is not a sign of confidence. Okay. No. And this is just like, it's hard to say, well, what are they going to get? We don't know what's in the bill. I mean, God bless Joe Manchin for saying, I want to look at the bill text before I agree to this framework and a bunch of other stuff gets junked up in it, which is most likely going to happen. But this is just such a convoluted, complex process. There's been barely any effort into selling the actual bill and explaining what it will do for people because it's broken down into this one-step, two-step, hard infrastructure, soft infrastructure, blah, blah, blah. Everyone else is tuned out. So, Damon, the president did, though, today begin to shift and start to talk about the actual details, which he's been criticized for not doing before. Um, today, he started to do that. Persuasive? What, what do you think? Well, I mean, I, I think it was okay. I mean, I, I don't know how to muster more enthusiasm than okay <laughs> about really any of this. And I suppose so Amanda that's said what it's you boring. get. You have, so you, <laughs> and you're saying it's well, not, you I mean, can't get excited. All right, okay. <laughs> well, you know, this is this is kind of how the sausage gets made in Washington. And I think in some respects, this is the inevitable result of a process that set out in the way it did, where you instead of sort of building up to uh, to a deal from scratch, instead we got a proposal for $3.5 trillion, which then has to be sort of cut and hacked back to satisfy these two uh, centrist Democrats, uh, Manchin and Cinema, and that can't be anything other than deflating in the end. I mean, the, to cite just one example and the one that I – one of the ones I care most about, the child tax credit – 
which was a part of uh, the, the COVID relief bill earlier in the year. I, I actually, I like Romney's version of this probably best of all the versions floating around, but the one that was in the relief bill was, was, was good and a, a solid start on a policy that I uh, feel pretty passionately about that this is a good thing. And originally, this was going to become a permanent program. Now it looks like in the, in the framework, we're down to a one-year extension. Um, that is sort of emblematic of where we are overall, sort of grand sweeping statements on a huge number of policies that have instead of, say, you know, I, I think Matthew Glazius has been very good at making the point that, you know, if you were going to go this way, start big and then whittle down, it probably would have made more political and policy sense to pick maybe the four things that you really care about, fight for them, make them permanent, and jettison the rest. Instead, we jettisoned a lot of the progressives' most favored things, uh, you know, medical and family paid leave, um, uh, a lot of the climate change-related stuff to pivot us away from fossil fuels and so forth. Uh, but instead, we have more like 12 programs that are sort of funded either temporarily and they sunset at a time when very likely Republicans will be in charge and will not renew them, or uh, they're sort of funded at kind of meager levels in the hopes that funding will be increased later. Now, again, that is one way to get to where you need to be, given the, the narrow uh, majorities that they have, the Democrats. But it does have the end result of, of sounding sort of mm, meh, okay at the end, which is why in the end, when it gets passed, I don't think it's going to lead to a huge surge of support and boost in Biden's approval or the Democrats' prospects uh, going into the next year and the midterms. But I don't think it'll probably hurt as much as it might have if it had been much bigger and more unwieldy and so forth. Can right. I just add one point to that? I mean, the idea that they started off big and are now in the position of cutting things that they say they care deeply about makes them look ineffective at the end of the day, even if they do pass trillions of dollars. I mean, they've already sort of stepped on and killed their own victory. Yeah. Bill Galston, a lot depends upon how this is going to be covered, right? I mean, it, it, if the emphasis is on all the things that they had to give up, to get this agreement rather than all the things they achieved, it could look like a very Pyrrhic victory. Well, a couple of points on that, Ona. Uh, first of all, you know, this debate between going big, long, and maybe even permanent on a few things versus doing less on a broader front has been raging inside the Democratic Party for weeks, but I always knew how it was going to get resolved. Uh, the policy logic points in favor of fewer, bigger, and longer, but the political logic pointed in exactly the other direction. Uh, and this, I think, was the inevitable result of putting together a coalition of people who share the label progressive, but who have different rank orders of passion, uh, different degrees of passion for different parts of, of the agenda. And I think it, it took this painful negotiation to reveal people's actual preferences and the rank order of, of those preferences. 
and I'm not sure that they're given where the Democrats started. I'm not sure that this kind of process could have been bypassed. Point number two, the, the initial press coverage is one thing, but the real question, it seems to me, is whether Democrats will settle on a message for selling this as a major accomplishment, a unified message that they are prepared to take into 2022 and the midterms. Uh, this did not happen in 2010 after the Affordable Care Act was passed, and the result contributed to a huge defeat, much of which might have occurred anyway. But given the headwinds that the Democrats are going to be facing in 2022, they can at least tack more or less successfully in those wins, depending on how unified and full-throated they are. And if a lot of progressives hang back and say, well, this is half a loaf and we like the way the other half tasted better, things will go very badly. But if, if the party says to the country, we have done our best to redeem the promises that we made to you in 2020, despite the fact that not a single Republican supported this bill in either house. This is a major accomplishment and the Democrats did it by themselves. That could have a real impact in marginal races. Jonathan Chait, this may be moot uh, at this point, but I, I want to ask you, um, because you've written a lot about, you know, in favor of the of the progressive side of the debate within the Democratic Party, and you've also written about the Republican Party and how it's an authoritarian cult at this point, and that you, because we have essentially a parliamentary system, you are constructively pro-Trump if you're not pro-Biden or if you're not, you know, hoping for the Democrats' mm -hmm. success. Right. And so I want to ask you this. What do you make of the argument that, look, the Democrats, at, led by Joe Biden, have really only one job themselves. Their job is to govern in such a way that the Republican, this current Republican Party cannot return to power. And if they had kept their eye on that overriding goal, it would have argued for being more modest about their uh, plans, you know, about their legislative agenda and being more focused on election reform and other issues that are uh, more pressing, honestly, than, than these. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. I think that's a pretty common misconception um, that's very particular to center-right people who have supported Biden. I think the key point you're missing is that the, De the Democratic Party has a mix of strengths and weaknesses with the electorate. A lot of its weaknesses are cultural identity, Right issues with military, issues around race, issues around policing, but its strengths are on the economy. And I, I've criticized the left wing of the Democratic Party on a lot of things, but they're right about this. Um, they're pushing Biden in a more popular and populist direction. All these things they're trying to do are popular. These social programs pull very, very well. Taxing the rich pulls even better. The plan they're trying to do is to allow the federal government to negotiate prescription drug costs. That's 80, 85 percent in polls. And a handful of centrist Democrats um, are blocking it. But that's very good for the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party's strategy needs to try to 
focused political debate on these economic populist issues where the Republican Party is stuck with the very unpopular position of favoring tax cuts for the rich above everything else and the Democratic Party's position polls much better. And if you don't have those debates, inevitably the, the political conversation is stuck on, on cultural issues where, where it's much more evenly divided and the Republican Party is a much better chance. Well, arguably, we'll, we'll see whether these programs are popular or not. I mean, it depends partly on, on how they get paid for, on whether the taxes really do fall only on the other guy. Um, and do. not on. We, well, we'll see. I mean, we'll see. Um, but um, so, so there's another, you know, there's another argument, which is that voters are concerned about rising crime. They're concerned about in, rising prices, inflation and immigration. And on all of those issues, the Democratic Party has been either AWOL because it's focused on these other things or contributing, arguably contributing to the problem. Uh, I would say on inflation in particular. You know, I think they had a trade-off when they, when they passed their relief bill at the start of the Biden presidency, was how much um, stimulus did they want to put in the, in the economy and how fast did they want to allow uh, the economy to recover? They I think recognized that the mistake the Democratic Party made in 2009 was to put too little stimulus into the economy to allow the economy to grow too slowly. Unemployment took years and years to get back to its pre-trend level, um, and that caused and, and helped fuel the, the political backlash that the Democratic Party dealt with and was the major cause of, of the Republican backlash. So I think they correctly decided to solve that by by putting enough stimulus into the economy to get unemployment and incomes back to trend. Now, that did help contribute to inflation in the short run, although I would argue that that a much bigger problem is just simply the global problem of, of supply lines being stretched against recovering economy that's sort of the snap back and forth like, a, like an elastic band and is just kind of struggling to, to handle that. But the expectations we have, and of course those expectations might be wrong, are that inflation will be relatively transitory and will be back to a full employment economy. And, and, and at that point, I think a lot of the benefits that we have from this approach are going to become um, real political benefits for the, for the incumbent party. And, and the big one is, as of now, wages for wage employees at the bottom of the scale are rising faster than for people at the top. And that's a real inversion of modern history. And that can actually uh, help the Democrats a lot if, as expected, this inflation works its way out of the system. Damon, Jonathan says that these policies are popular. And certainly when you poll people and say, you know, should there be 12 weeks of paid leave? Should there be, you know, federal help for elder care and uh, and preschool and free community college and so on, of course, people are going to say yes. They, they like all those things, but that's before the Republicans have had their opportunity to say that this is going to raise your taxes, which, you know, it may or may not, or make other cases against it. Also, I do get the feeling, and tell me how you feel about this, that for those middle-of-the-road voters, those swing voters who some people say don't exist, the suburbanites, let's call them, they do still worry a little bit about excessive government and too much spending. And those are a key constituency for the Democrats in 2024, for sure, and certainly in some races in 2022. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to, despite, uh, you know, the, the beg to differ moniker, I, I, I'm not <laughs> going to, to differ with uh, Jonathan too strenuously on this. I mean, I know the polling 
And I, I agree that uh, the Democrats' biggest weakness is on cultural issues and, and everything wrapped up with culture war issues, which these days is a lot more of the public policy mix than it was, say, 20 years ago. Um, and so, uh, you know, in the scheme of the, the available options, the Democrats are strongest on economic issues. And it is true that polling shows that a number of these policies are quite popular. And so it does make a kind of sense for the Democrats to really lead on that issue. On the other side, not so much in kind of the direction of rejecting that so much as adding a, a bit of skepticism to it. Um, we're really talking about here what will be the political uh, consequence of adopting certain of these policies. And Mona, I think you're quite right that we're talking in a vacuum when a pollster is speaking to somebody on the phone about a policy. Let's be honest, that person probably has never heard of or thought about for five seconds and is briefly explained to them by the pollster and they say, oh, they, yeah, that sounds good. Sure, I'm for that. Um, when when Republicans actually can get their hands on it and start framing it in terms of big government, less freedom, higher taxes inevitably coming down the pike because of this, that could change it. And then even aside from that, there is the disturbing fact that I know a lot of Democrats are, are somewhat uh, nervous about. Uh, people have written about this. I think Eric Levitz has and others that, you know, the reality is uh, the Democrats approved a hell of a lot of raw cash for people within this calendar year, like big chunks of money appearing like magic in uh, in your checking account. Uh, and the results for Biden's approval rating were effectively nothing. Um, so I would say, you know, what could be more popular than here's a bunch of free money <laughs> appearing in your bank account where it didn't exist before, if that doesn't lead to a surge of support and enthusiasm, whether uh, a policy enacted that comes into effect in 12 to 18 months and is sort of dispersed throughout the economy um, is really going to lead to better prospects electorally against Republicans in future races, hell if I know. Um, so, you know, that's why I guess uh, I'm... Uh, I, I don't really have a great, <laughs> strong answer on it so much as I guess we'll see. Yeah, no, that was that was that was interesting. All right, Amanda, Joe Biden is underwater, as everyone knows, in his approval, according to the 538 tracker. Approval is right now at about 43.6, disapproval at 51. But he is very popular among Democrats. He's still, he's still at 92 percent among Democrats. Where he has really lost ground is among independents. And, you know, there are all kinds of independents. There, you know, most of them are not true independents. They lean one way or the other, but there are some who are true independents. And those are the valuable swing voters. And uh, with them, he is really, uh, he's down quite a lot, even though he won them in, uh, in 2020. So do you think that's the thing that he should be focused on? Probably. Um, I mean, but I think it gets to the broader problem is that people were looking at him to sort of right the ship. And I think a lot of this has to do with the economy. Obviously, the economy took a tank, you know, after COVID. It was doing relatively well under Trump until that happened, largely because of his handling of it. And it seems like the big Democratic solution to these economic problems is just handing out free stuff left and right. 
I, I don't think that's something certainly right of center voters want and probably not independent. Having a good economy that provides jobs and wages and opportunity is far better than these handouts of child tax credits, blah, 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 that just magically appeared in the accounts, as was mentioned earlier. I mean, he's not getting credit for that because I'm not sure people consented to that. I mean, I keep hearing the Democrats saying, oh, this is popular, that's popular. Well, it's not paying off in the polls. It's not working. And so everyone is betting that if we do these things and do childcare, everyone wants it. Well, I can tell you, I'm a mother that isn't interested in that because I rearrange my life so that I'm not dropping my child off at an institutional daycare. I mean, other people do that. That's fine. That wasn't my choice. It's not going to help me. My life has already moved on from that. Universal pre-K. I sent my children to a church uh, pre, pre-K program. That wouldn't have helped me. It wouldn't have helped a lot of people. So there's a lot of assumptions going on of what women want that I don't think are necessarily true once you dig into it and how whether or not it would really help people. Jonathan Shea, do you want to just answer the point about uh, the existing largesse has not improved Biden's standing? What's How, how do you respond to that? I mean, you seem to be talking about two different things. By existing largesse, you're talking about the relief bill that they passed within a few weeks of him taking office. And and that was an extremely popular bill. And at the time that was passed, his approval ratings were extremely high. What you've had since then is a deterioration of his his political standing that's coincided with um, the party fighting over a bill that they have – the contours of of which they haven't yet defined, right? So – I don't think you can say that people um, disapprove of this bill or disapprove of what he's trying to pass because they're still at the stage of deciding what's going to be in the bill. Then they're going to get to the stage of saying, okay, we're, we've got a bill that has child care, pre-K, taxes the rich, climate protections. They're going to go sell it. And then we'll have a test of, of whether that's contributing to his, to his political standing or whether it's, it's hurting him. In the meantime, I, I think what's going on with his approval ratings is, is – is attributable to other factors. I, I think um, the return of COVID is a huge problem because that was a defining issue for him. And then you had this Delta variant that kind of shut down life for a lot of people after they thought it was behind them forever. Afghanistan, uh, whatever you make of the merits of his decision, the news coverage was brutal. You basically had three weeks in a row where Fox News and CNN looked identical. They were all hammering him in exactly the same terms, and 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 every screen from MSNBC to Fox was basically talking about the debacle he was he was he was overseeing. And then you know again you've had um, inflation for a while running above um, economic growth, so a significant number of people um, are are seeing you know falling real real wages. Of course, you have people who are back to work now who who wouldn't have been back to work if you didn't pass that recovery bill. But that's that's a small percentage of the public. So again, I, I I just don't see how you can look at the mix of positive aspects and negative aspects. I mean, every every politician has something that's going for them and some factors that are working against them. I don't see how you can look at him trying to finance these popular programs funded by extremely popular taxes on the rich. And again, I think this is the thing that you you leave the Republican Party, but you're still stuck on this idea that people really um, are supply-siders at heart, and they're just not. That that's the problem he has. I just don't see any evidence. No, I, I, I will – I readily concede that people always like to tax other people, and uh, that's that's just a rule of life. Don't tax 
you, don't tax me, tax that man behind the tree. That's yes. as old as politics. So yeah, sure, people always like to tax the rich and, and so on. But that doesn't mean I mean that... not not everybody. Like I don't <laughs> like the idea of taxing people to go to programs that aren't likely to be very effective. Well, well so not everybody. keep I mean, their money. No, okay. it's true. I'll be the dissenter on this popularity contest. <laughs> no, you're you're right. It's you know, like the number one complaint the public has with the tax system is the rich don't pay their fair share. And that, that gets you about seventy to eighty percent, but but twenty to thirty percent of the country is still a lot of people. Okay. Well, there are many other aspects of this. It's not so much being a supply sider as being a bit skeptical about the capacity of the state to do the things it sets out to do. But that's a bigger discussion for another time, not for this podcast. And, uh, you know, it doesn't mean that, that, that we shouldn't do anything. Uh, there are certain aspects of this legislation that I favor, but I just, I just think they've bitten off too much and they ought to be focused for what it's worth, they ought to be focused narrowly on governing in such a way that the Republicans will not be able to come back to power for a while. Agreed. All right, let's turn now to cancel culture because this is a topic that gets very heated and some arguments have been floated quite recently. Um, Ann Applebaum had a piece in The Atlantic that got a lot of pushback. People said, well, this is a moral panic, some people argued, some people on the left said, it's mere moral panic. There really isn't a problem with cancel culture on the left. So I would like to begin with Damon, because Damon, you had a piece this week about why wokeness drives you up the wall. And yeah. um, so let's start with Dorian Abbott. So this is a climate scientist scheduled to give a prestigious lecture at MIT. This was canceled by MIT, because he had written a piece with another professor arguing against the existing affirmative action policies that universities use. By the way, his proposal was to eliminate all kinds of things, not just admissions based on ethnic group, but he also wanted to eliminate admissions based on uh, legacy or athletic ability and so on. Anyway, this was considered so outside the bounds of reasonable discussion that he was considered a pariah and he would not be allowed to give a talk on climate at MIT. And that's just one of the most recent. So tell us why it drives you up the wall, Damon. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I've written a number of pieces about this subject and aspects of it over the last few years. And I was sort of looking for a way to enter the conversation in a way that didn't just lead me to repeat myself uh, and say things I've said before. And so I, I did this kind of personal angle on you know, why it drives me crazy. Uh, and I, I did do some, you know, attempt to do some reflection on why is it that, you know, uh, yeah, I get really upset about Trump and all kinds of other things in the news that I think are probably all things considered more important than the subject. But yet when I read a story about this climate scientist who gets disinvited from MIT to give a scientific lecture, not a lecture on, you know, race admissions and policy, uh, but about his, his area of academic specialty, and he's disinvited because some people raise an objection. I then, like, it makes me very angry and agitated. And why is that? Well, um, I, I sort of talk in the piece about how, for me, it has to do with 
feeling like I'm in Sunday school, like I'm being lectured to by a preacher in a parish I didn't join uh, by choice, trying to get me to convert to some kind of a, a moral crusade. Um, and and it's I just don't want to be talked to like that. I don't want to turn on NPR uh, to bring up another of the, the recent cancel uh, controversies. Dave Chappelle, the, the comedian uh, who has a Netflix special that has really enraged uh, transgender activists. And by the way, uh, it was entirely intentional that it would do this. It's actually one of the threads in the special <laughs> that that is what's going to happen. And they played, you know, right right down the line exactly as he intended them to and have tried to get uh, the special dumped. Now, I have no special uh, attachment to Dave Chappelle. He's not my favorite comedian. I, I laughed a little bit in that special watching it, but not, not the most that I usually do. He's also incredibly rich and very powerful, and he will be perfectly fine. His career is not going to be ended by any of this. In fact, I'm sure the ratings for the special were far higher because of the controversy. And yet, I go into my car to pick up my daughter from her dance class. I turn on NPR, and there's a trans activist on the radio explaining to me why this special is very bad and evil, and I should not like it, and Netflix should be ashamed that it's running it. And there's no kind of contrary view presented. It's just sort of laid out there for the listener as the simple truth. And I don't, I, again, it makes me feel like I've sort of ended up in a kind of a Puritan revival meeting or something. I think I've crossed religious traditions with that image. But um, in any case, I sort of talk in the piece about how um, it, it's not just the, the kind of lecturing and kind of moral tone of it. It also has to do with a particular kind of morality. What we're dealing with with cancel culture, it's not that it's not the cancellation itself that is the problem. All cultures cancel things. I would have no objection to a company firing an employee who turned out to be a passionate Nazi or a child molester or all kinds of other things that we all would consider beyond the pale. The difference is that what we have here are certain kinds of left-wing cultural activists who are appointing themselves the people who are going to be in charge of moving those lines of where we draw the line, what we consider cancelable behavior and thought and speech. And it's that effort to, it's a kind of, um, you know, uh, you, the, the word democracy is always thrown around, but it is it is very sort of culturally authoritarian to have a small group of activists say, I get to decide what is morally right or wrong. And if you don't follow me, I'm going to morally shame you. I'm going to try to get you fired. And then when institutions, often liberal institutions, universities and and uh, businesses and HR departments that sort of want to be seen in a decent light in public, uh, afraid of Twitter mobs and so forth, of, of, of uh, like-minded activists, sort of go along and say, yes, yes, we will listen to what you activists have to say, and we'll change the rules so that this is now uh, what we consider acceptable. And I don't, I don't appreciate this, this small faction of people uh, setting themselves up into that authoritative cultural role, and it sort of gets my back up. So that's my that's my case. Okay, thank you for that, um, Bill Galston. There are two 
aspects of this that I find particularly alarming. Um, the first is this conflation of um, words with violence. So people on the left will frequently say that words are violence um, and that therefore, because words are violence, um, that, that extreme measures need to be taken against offending words. And you find this kind of argumentation, for example, when the um, writers in the New York Times, when they objected to the publication of Senator Tom Cotton's uh, op-ed, they said that it made them feel unsafe. And of course, they were not physically unsafe because of those words. What they were saying is they didn't like the content. They disagreed vehemently with what he said. But that's a huge distinction, it seems to me. And, and that's the first point. Now, the second point is this that you often see. This was in a story about the cancellation of Dorian Abbott's lecture by MIT. And it's a quote from a professor at Williams College, Phoebe Cohn. And she says, this idea of intellectual debate and rigor as the pinnacle of intellectualism comes from a world in which white men dominated. So that's the second part that I find really alarming is this idea that logic or rationality or being able to even engage in debate is somehow a mark of the patriarchy that we need to get beyond. Over to you. <laughs> well, I'm certainly not going to argue with you about either of those two points, Mona. I share them. I've made them publicly myself. Uh, I think there's something deeper going on, and that is the institutions where this sort of thing is happening most frequently are the institutions which in our society are, in theory, most dedicated to the free flow of ideas. Uh, whether you're talking about universities or newspapers, or even, I'm sorry to say, think tanks, you see the effort to, to silence or su suppress speech in precisely the institutions that are dedicated to speech as free and unfettered as possible. Uh, and you know, the idea that an idea you don't like uh, does violence to you in some way is, in my view, ridiculous. And if you're claiming that an idea that you disagree with, that challenges you, uh, makes you feel unsafe, in my view, that's your problem. It's not the speaker's problem. It's not the institution's problem. And if what I just said comes to the attention of my home institution, <laughs> I expect a pushback. But I genuinely believe that within certain portions of civil society that are meant to be communities of the like-minded and are even self-consciously constituted in that way, a narrower perimeter of speech is morally and certainly legally and constitutionally acceptable. But in a university, at a newspaper, in a think tank, absolutely not. And I think we have to draw some lines, and I'll make one other point that I think I've made before. The proliferation of this behavior is enabled by the spinelessness of administrators 
and people in positions of authority. I have to say, I'm having flashbacks here because I went to Cornell University in Ooh. the mid late 1960s. Yep. And I experienced firsthand as barely a young man what administrators who do not have the courage of the convictions that they're supposed to have as leaders of institutions dedicated to free inquiry, I saw what that kind of spinelessness can do. And now I'm seeing it all over again. Uh, and it scares me, and frankly, it disgusts me. Uh, and I see Bill, this- would you mind just yeah. re refreshing the recollection of our listeners who may not know what happened at Cornell? There were armed students took over buildings and made demands, right? You wanted to spell that out? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> You're asking me to relive a nightmare. <laughs> but it's but, important, yes. if you wouldn't yes. mind. It is important. Armed students with heavy weapons and bandoliers took over the student union and, as I recall, uh, some others issued blood-curdling physical threats against various professors at the university. Uh, and this was a drama that went on for quite some time. And many well-known professors, uh, not just conservatives, left the institution uh, out of frustration and dismay that they received no support from the administration and less than they expected, even from their colleagues. It was, you know, for me, it was a defining moment. Uh, and, uh, and there's a tendency to say, well, if the cause is just, then maybe we don't have to examine the means or the consequences of the means. And I see that happening all over again, too. Yeah. Amanda, there have been a number of surveys of students uh, at universities, one of them from the uh, Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, or FIRE, found that 80% of students said that they self-censor at least some of the time because they're afraid of the consequences of, of saying what they really think. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that is a natural inclination when there's such a permanence assigned to anything that you say online and social norms are changing so fast. I would like to have a conversation with a college student and say that you are free to speak your mind in whatever platform you wish, but that is a recipe for a disaster given the permanence of speech that is preserved online and can be weaponized against you in any way. And so I think that's why we're seeing such a strong debate over cancel culture right now when everyone has access to social platforms of some kind and your words can be weaponized against you. Um, you know, that's one aspect of this. Another aspect that I, I am almost more concerned about this point is the cries of being silenced and censored when people really aren't. You just have this in mind about like the school board meetings where parents are saying, I, we won't be silenced. Well, you're there at a school board meeting yelling and talking to the administrators. <laughs> and I, I see this constant trend on the right to convince people that they are victims. They are being censored. They are being silenced in a way to channel political anger for other uses. Yep. And so there are, you know, two two sides to this coin, but cancel culture is always a question about who gets to speak and control what spaces. And this is just part of a long-standing debate. I think that was largely 
uh, confined to academia that has spilled out all over our culture because of social media. Right. For a long time, this kind of thing was going on in academia, and people said, well, it's, it's just in academia. When Once those kids come to the real world, they'll recognize that that's not how we do things. But, of course, the yeah, question- I will add one thing that I meant to say to Bill's point about the role of institutions. There's a huge problem when, say, a college invites someone to speak, and then there's a revolt, and then they abandon that speaker. At some point, the platforms, whether it is a university, whether it is a newspaper, whether it is a television channel, you do have a responsibility for the people you platform. And once you decide to platform them, you should be prepared to defend them unless there's some kind of gross mistake made. Right. Okay, Jonathan Chait, I want to read to you from the statement that was posted by a young writer named Alexandra Duncan. She had um, written a, a young adult fiction book, and she is white, and she one of her characters that she presumed to speak in the character of a Black woman of Gullah Geechee heritage, and this provoked outrage, and so she has pulled the book, um, and, but, but I want to just read some of the apology that she posted. Mm-hmm. She says, this past Saturday, the cover reveal for my book, Ember Days, went up along with a description of the plot. Following that, author colleagues reached out to me to express concern that the premise of the book, which included chapters from the point of view of a character of Gullah Geechee heritage, was harmful. The Gullah Geechee culture has been systematically repressed and erased, and in my misguided attempt to write a book that was inclusive of the cultures of Charleston and the Low Country, where the book is set, I participated in this ongoing erasure. My own limited worldview as a white person led me to think I could responsibly depict a character from this culture. Clearly, the fact that I did not see the signs of the problem with my book's premise in my research or conversations about the book is evidence that I was not the right person to try to tell this story. I am deeply ashamed to have made a mistake of this magnitude and on and on and on. Okay? Um, does that have a slight Maoist sound to you? <laughs> more than more than slight. More than slight. Um, you know, maybe as the person who's who's most in the kind of liberal milieu, I can I can bring a perspective that that adds something because my normative views aren't terribly different from those that you've expressed on the same topic. Overwhelmingly, the reaction I get from people within these institutions is not um, to support these illiberal norms that you see spreading through these institutions, but a resistance to criticizing them. And I think that resistance is just purely rooted in reflexive partisan feeling and sense of just they want to see the world as being divided between two teams, red and blue. And if you're attacking this, that means you're on the team red or you're criticizing blue and therefore you're you're helping the red and, and they don't want to do it. It's not you really have a tiny number of people who are actually driving this and a much larger number of people who are just going along with it. I think I wrote the first major piece about the, the resurgence of, of, of this political correctness. It was in January of 2015. And I yes, really think this, 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 thank you. This started in 2014 is really when this came back. I mean, of course, if you, if, if you, if you follow conservative media, if you listen to Rush Limbaugh, if you read National Review, political correctness has been there all along. But in those places, political correctness is mostly just a synonym for liberalism. 
But I think the way we're defining it is something different, is a, a set of illiberal norms um, that are spreading in particular times that you've really had since about 2014 or so in a big way and, and was pretty and was pretty dormant, except for maybe a brief upsurge in the late 80s and early 90s. But the point I want to make is that, so I started writing about this in early 2015, and I've gotten back to the topic from time to time. And I would say my career, I've been almost completely unsuccessful at persuading people to agree with me on almost anything I've written about, except for this. I've actually had a lot of people come to me almost always in private and say, mm. I used to think you were wrong. Now I think you're right. And I actually do think maybe I'm optimistic. I do think there are some green shoots of people in these institutions who were thrown back on their heels when this first appeared. And they, and they had the, the sort of, you know, the, the, the old saying, a liberal is someone who won't take their own side in an argument, and they, mm -hmm. they didn't want to fight back, and they didn't want to defend themselves, they didn't want to be defensive, and they wanted to be open to the perspective of other people, and I think that's all laudable to an extent, and they, and they wanted to go along with it. Um, but, but I think a, a lot of people in these places are starting to reach a point saying, okay, we need to try to accommodate the reasonable demands that are being made of them. And some of them are reasonable to, you know, open up your institutions to people who have been kept out for a long time. That's very reasonable. That's very good. Um, but say, but where, where, where does it get unreasonable and where, where, where do we have to draw the line and where can we make rules and principles that are going to stop this nonsense? And I do think you're starting to see that. I, I, and I, and I hope to see more. Well, I think voices like yours are critical uh, because you have the credibility on the left to be a critic. And, oh, no. Uh, oh, no, you never, you never asked the left about me. <laughs> okay, well, look, maybe not. But look, I, I, I do think Amanda and I have, you know, been in the vineyards, you know, doing the work of criticizing conservatives from within. And, uh, and, it's, and yep. it's important that people yep. be willing to criticize their own side. Really important. Absolutely. All right, we will now turn to our highlight or low light of the week. Amanda Carpenter, you'll go first. I think mine is a highlight and a low light. Okay. Um, Mitt Romney dressing up as the Ted Lasso character to serve Kirsten Cinema cookies in her office. <laughs> and that's wholesome and sweet. And probably the biggest question I have about it all is where is where was the photo taken of Romney serving Cinema the cookies? It's, it's painted a beautiful baby pink. I can't imagine where they would be meeting other than her Senate office. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine a Senate office being baby pink because <laughs> uh, not because of her color choices, which I find completely believable. But when I worked in the Senate and we had to repaint offices, we were given a very distinct choice of colors to choose from. And that most definitely was not one of the choices. <laughs> okay. Damon Linker. Uh, yeah, well, for my choice, um, I'm going to say what I suspect will be the only uh, words on this particular episode of the podcast about foreign policy. Uh, I mean, if if Amanda or Mona or Bill uh, or Jonathan chime in with something else, I'm sorry I stepped on your toes and assumed that. Um, but we haven't talked about foreign policy at all, and I want to highlight, uh, I think, a very good op-ed in the Wall Street Journal published, uh, I believe, uh, today, titled uh, The Fight for Taiwan Could Come Soon by Elbridge Colby. 
Colby is a, a kind of a, a Washington think tank guy, uh, pretty much on the Republican side. He even served uh, in the Trump administration as a as a kind of faceless drone at the Pentagon, I believe. But he's a very smart guy, and I want to highlight this op-ed in particular because. Um, on the podcast, I think sometimes because I was a, a pretty severe critic of the Iraq war and was in favor of the Afghanistan withdrawal uh, and some other things uh, and foreign policy that sometimes placed me a little bit on the offsides of uh, the bulwark and some other center-right institutions. I think I, people sometimes assume that, uh, you know, my criticism of this is that uh, I, I'm sort of reflexively against the use of American power, and I really am not. What I am a critic of usually is um, people who tend to think about foreign policy in terms of America being this great, powerful nation, and we should be doing everything everywhere, and sort of not wanting to think about trade-offs and having to prioritize. And what Colby is, I think, very good at is talking about the, the China threat in a way that acknowledges that, uh, that, first of all, this is a real threat uh, and a very important one, but that facing it squarely is going to require rethinking priorities. So I want to read one brief paragraph from this to explain why I think this is a worthwhile op-ed. Quote, averting war against a superpower, China, will require being ruthless about American priorities, though. Holding the line in Asia will mean the U.S. military will have to stop doing almost everything else other than nuclear deterrence and counterterrorism. The U.S. military will have to scale down in the Middle East, Africa, Latin America, and even Europe. America had a chance to make a more evolutionary and balanced shift to Asia, but we blew it. Now we need to focus, even if it means the military must effectively drop everything else. Now, again, you can disagree with that, and I'm all in favor of uh, debating whether he's correct about that, but I do champion and cheer on the way of thinking about it, which is, okay, if you disagree with it, then exactly where are you going to shift the balance in a, a, a kind of zero-sum universe where we can't be everything to everyone in every place on the planet? Uh, it sounds eminently reasonable. There are no choices, only trade-offs, right? Exactly. Uh, okay, Bill Galston. Well, as it turns out, uh, Damon is not the only person with a, <laughs> a foreign policy, you know, highlight or low light. Which is it? First of all, I want to, you know, I want to second uh, his his recommendation of uh, of Elbridge Col Colby's work. I just finished his book which is called The Strategy of Denial, you know, which is a very rigorous, grand strategy pointing to a conclusion with which I emphatically agree and which I have written about repeatedly in recent work, weeks, namely how vital uh, the defense of Taiwan is to the United States and its allies throughout the Indo-Pacific. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say uh, that uh, – you know, th that the forcible Chinese takeover of Taiwan would call into question all of the arrangements and alliances that we have forged in that region over, over the past three or four decades. But the point I was going to make in my own name uh, is a related one, namely that China has just 
tested a so-called hypersonic missile, which brings together a couple of technologies which the United States previously was unaware that the Chinese had succeeded in combining and has created a new class of missiles that will be largely invulnerable to the sorts of anti-missile defenses that we've spent decades constructing. General Milley, uh, Chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, referred to this just yesterday, and I quote, as nearly a Sputnik moment. Uh, and uh, this gives, I think, added urgency to the new defense strategy uh, that the Department of Defense is taking its time releasing. Uh, I hope it's released and that we get to work on it with as little delay as possible. Bill, just on this subject, quick question. Did you think that President Biden's comments about Taiwan were ill-advised or well-advised then, where he basically said, yes, we would defend Taiwan? Well, it was clearly ill-advised to refer to it as subtle policy when the reverse is the case, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And that that did not convey an impression of competence or mastery. On the other hand, and I'm not sure that I would go so far as the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, Richard Haas, who has recommended recently abandoning the strategy of strategic ambiguity and replacing it one with one of strategic clarity. But if the president was signaling that he's going to lean forward on the defense of Taiwan and at a minimum uh, give the Taiwanese everything they need to mount what is called a porcupine defense, where mm -hmm. you know approaching Taiwan <laughs> with hostile intent becomes a very painful process for, for the aggressor, uh, then I, I think the signal was useful. But clearly, uh, the White House didn't think that that was the president's finest hour, <laughs> and they cleaned up his comments hastily. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but I think it's uh, I, I, I think it was a classic Washington gaffe where a politician inadvertently tells the truth, and yeah. I, I hope that's what happened. Well, and and arguably the great danger in making these gaffes, in, it goes the other way. You know, the situations where we convey uh, weakness or, or that, that we're okay with, a, with an invasion or whatever. I mean, there have been many examples in history where that's happened, uh, most recently with Saddam and Kuwait, where our ambassador mm -hmm. supposedly, April Glaspie, supposedly said that we didn't really have any concerns about Kuwait, and then, you know, well, Saddam's you tanks rolled in. <laughs> You know, the most the most famous example of that, although historians debate it, is a speech by Dean Acheson, Dean Acheson yes. Secretary of State, that excluded South Korea from the right. American defense perimeter, strengthening Kim Il-sung's argument to Stalin that Stalin ought to support a North, and North Korean invasion of the South. Right, right. Okay, Jonathan Chait. Yeah, I was going to pick a worst thing because that seems more fun. There's so many more things to pick from. <laughs> it's so true. Uh, Ron DeSantis appeared last week at an anti-vax rally with his Surgeon General Joseph Ladapo, who explained to the audience that they should be very skeptical of the vaccine uh, because people are being forced to put something in their bodies that we don't know all there is to know about yet. Um, and 
and he goes on in that vein, but then he utters this line, which I think is really pretty remarkable. People need to stick with their intuition and their sensibilities, he says, rather than listen to what the scientists are telling them, which is just such a remarkable statement for the, the top medical professional in the state to utter because it just goes against the entire scientific method that has been the, the dominant ethos of, 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 of medicine for, for more than a century. I mean, it's the people, enlightenment, basically. Right. I mean, people <laughs> were following their intuitions that when they felt sick, um, they probably had some bad blood and some leeches would get the bad blood out. Yes. And then they feel better. That, that was a totally intuitive idea for a long time. But then they had to test it and they realized, no, it's completely wrong. Um, so we're going back to intuition and feelings as the basis for these medical decisions. Because, and, and again, this is not a surprise. He was a critic of the vaccine. He was selected by DeSantis for that reason. And now he's just, just going out and, and, and making these bonkers claims. So that, that I think deserves some notice. You know, I think that Beg to Differ really should take a stand against night air, the dangers <laughs> of night air. Yeah. Uh, Miasma. Uh, yes. All right. I would like to draw attention to a piece by Judith Sholovitz, who writes for the New York Times. She's written for The Atlantic. Very interesting writer. Uh, covers cultural issues. It was uh, in last Sunday's paper. It's called Does Co-Housing Provide a Path to Happiness for Modern Parents? And she visits this co-housing situation, which is not a commune. This is not a situation where people are exchanging sexual partners or anything along those lines. It's families, but they do come together for a bit of communal support and living, including one big kitchen and so on, you know, communal areas, communal chores and so forth. And they're doing it in cities as well as out in the countryside, which was the more usual place for these kind of communities. And it seems to be a response, a, a creative um, and interesting response, I would say, to one of the crises of our modern era, which is that of isolation and loneliness and the difficulties that people are having with fraying families. So I thought it was a very interesting piece. Uh, I don't know whether it will work, but it's worth thinking about. Uh, again, uh, does co-housing provide a path to happiness for modern parents? And with that, I want to thank Amanda Carpenter for sitting in for Linda this week and Jonathan Tate for being our guest. And Beg to Differ will return next week as every week. 